My friends, thank you so much for joining us today on the View from the Front podcast. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a nice guy who's working as hard as I can to unite this country. This show is mostly about military and defense news, and I'll explain in a moment why I think it's important we stay informed on this topic. But the show also includes plenty of motivation, which I hope inspires you and helps you in your daily journey toward your goals. You know, just one small positive thought in the morning can change your whole day. And we all know that opportunities don't happen, you create them. So I want to make sure I do my best to feed you mentally. As you've probably heard, people often say that motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing. That's why we recommend it daily. That was said by the great Zig Ziglar. And I may not be the great Zig Ziglar, but my friends say I'm pretty motivating. Or, at least my mom does. But this show is about more than just trying to help you as you confront whatever struggles you're dealing with. This show is about a bigger issue confronting us, and that's the great division that we face in America. A house divided cannot stand, and I will not remain silent while politicians and media personalities throw gas on a dangerous fire. These hotheads and extremists are simply seeking their own personal gain, and with every waking moment of their day, they're doing their best to tear this country apart. And they're doing it so that they can advance to a higher office or so that they can get more followers and advertising dollars. These hotheads and extremists are a danger to our country, a serious one, but I don't think they speak for most Americans. Most Americans are good people who would help you in a heartbeat. I've been helped out in the country, and I've also been helped in major cities. My friends, most Americans are good, and I think you need to hear this said out loud on a regular basis. Let's not let the loud, angry politicians and media personalities darken our hearts. And let's also not let them rip apart this country that we all love. I fully understand how frustrated most Americans feel at how divided we are, and it's time for a better way. That's why I'm doing this. I couldn't find a podcast designed for people who love their country, and for people who are tired of their news being over-the-top and scary, so I decided to create one. This is a show designed for people who are also tired of hysterical, over-the-top politicians and media pundits who manipulate and take advantage of an under-informed public. It's a show for average citizens who I know are too busy to really study all of the issues that confront us. I'll do my absolute best to explain things as simply as I can. I feel I need to say just a little bit about why I'm convinced that foreign policy decisions matter. Foreign policy decisions can be tragic and heartbreaking, and it's important that we get them right. When we get them wrong, such as we did during the Vietnam War, our very country can be ripped apart by division and chaos. It's also crucial that when we get them wrong, as we did in Vietnam, then the faster we can course correct, the faster we can reduce how many lives we lose. America is the world's leading power, and we mostly lead the world from a position of moral authority, showing other countries how they should behave in regards to ethics, restraint, and providing freedom for their citizens. We are a force of good for the world, although I will acknowledge that we are not perfect. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters, and I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness. I strongly believe that more unites us than divides us. And while we face great challenges as a country, America has stood together for more than 240 years. It's only by pulling our country closer together that we can pass on a better future for our kids. And we need to hold and cherish the beliefs that got us here today. Beliefs such as patience, kindness, and a strong belief that our best days lie before us. These are the beliefs that got us to this point, and they're also the kind of optimistic beliefs that will get us to a brighter future. So let's get a little better informed, which I'll do my best to help you do, while also keeping it interesting and brief. And let's also work to get a little more united as a people. And with that, let's get started. I wanted to start today by sharing one personal thing, if I may. I keep a daily journal that I try to fill out just a few lines just to help me remember what happened on that day. And it's a a five-year memory journal. It's called One Line a Day, a five-year memory book if you're interested. But I wanted to share something that I think is kind of illustrative, and I think that might touch you a bit. And I was writing last night's entry, and I looked up and saw the year previous, which the advantage of this small journal is 
As you write each one, you can read what you did last year, what you did the year before, what you did the year before that. And I wanted to share that this time last year, a day ago, I wrote that, I'll kind of summarize it, but I basically said that I had a huge day in chasing my dreams. And I put that I only barely wrote a Substack post, which is what, of course, ended up turning into this podcast for those newer listeners. This originally began as a, just a, a, originally once a week written post that then turned into a twice a week written post. But, so I said I only barely wrote a Substack post. I nearly punted. And what I mean by that is, and I remember the day, I was kind of down. I was like, this is stupid. Why am I doing this? This isn't going to work out. I should just... We all have those days where you just kind of want to get up, give up. And then, literally on that day, which was a dark day for me, I get in my own head a lot. I'm sure some of y'all do the same. I put in my journal, and then that day I ended up getting a $50 subscription to it, which was the annual price, which is still what the annual price is. And I put, that was my first non-friend, non-family subscriber. And before that, I'd had a couple of friends and family members who subscribed. But that was the first legit, holy crap, I don't know whose email this is, who is this person, subscriber that I had. And I can't tell you how much that made my day a year ago. And I only share this story because it's just a small just a small, simple little story that shows the impact all of us can have on other people. And, you know, I I still don't know who it is. If I was smart enough to figure out my stats, maybe I could try to dig into Substack, see who that subscriber was. I'm not even 100% sure there's still a subscriber. They may have stopped at some point. I have notifications set up in a way that if I get a new subscriber or a new email, a free one or a paid subscriber, I get alerted. But if they cancel or if someone drops it, I've got it set up where I don't want to know. Because not that I want to avoid hard truths or anything. And I definitely try to keep up with the stats a little bit to see what I can do to grow the show. And uh, that's that's part of the reason I went to the podcast, the uh, written version. I had grown it to a certain level, but it had kind of peaked. And I was trying to figure out what to do with it. And uh, I still enjoyed doing it. But I had a lot of folks talking about how the New York Times and a lot of other media companies are really going toward podcasts and audio because we're all busy people and people can listen to this while they're driving or doing the dishes or laundry or whatever it is a person's doing. Sometimes it works. Some folks work from home. Some folks work in a place where they're allowed to listen. But at any rate, I started realizing, man, maybe I should do audio, put out a podcast because I certainly listen to my share of them. I only share all this because someone made my day a year ago. And if at some point I'm fortunate enough that this podcast were to grow a bit and and touch someone or do some small good, who knows? Maybe that one paid subscriber a year ago kept this thing going. I'd like to think I would have kept going. I probably would have, but you'd never know. And so the only reason I share all of that, and I appreciate you allowing me to indulge and share this story is, We all can make an impact on those around us, which is why I end every podcast by saying reach out to a friend or do something good. Because in a world that often seems dark and with media stories of pending disaster or worry about this or that, there's just constant like negativity out there. The reality is we can actually reach out and make change and we can actually make the world a little better place. And I think sometimes we forget that. So I appreciate you letting me share that, and let's just get right into the news. Since our last episode on Tuesday, the Ukrainians have continued to make advances in the eastern part of the country, in the Donbass region. Dr. Mike Martin, who's an analyst, he posted, um, in fact, I have a map as well, but he posted that the Ukrainians have now moved past a river called the Oskil River, and that the advance continues. And in the source notes, there's a map. The Ukrainians have even pushed across a railway, which was something that uh, the Russians had been using to resupply other forces. So that will add additional strain to the Russian army as it tries to figure out exactly where it can stop the Ukrainians. General Mark Hurtling had said in a podcast interview with Charlie Sachs. By the way, the if you're not 
subscribe to the uh, Bulwark podcast, you definitely should. It's a great daily show to listen to Monday through Friday. But in an interview they had that went really into the weeds on some great issues, so I highly recommend that. But General Mark Hurtling talked about that essentially the Russians have a couple of things they can do. They could try to find some type of natural terrain to help them stop the Ukrainians, such as a river or maybe mountains. But unfortunately, the Ukrainians have pierced several potential river obstacles or large uh, water obstacles, as I mentioned in the earlier part of this episode. And additionally, the Russians don't seem to have many military units that they could use to try to plug up any kind of line. The other thing is that the Russians don't have to hope that the Ukrainians are going to be fatigued and that their op-tempo will begin to slow down. But so far, that doesn't seem to be happening too much. It has to happen at some point in theory, but I'm not sure how long or how well this was planned or if they're resting some units while pushing forward with others. But they're certainly still making pretty good progress. So I wanted to share that. I wanted to share a couple of paragraphs from the Washington Post, which had a good summary of the situation and helps for those who have just started once again getting involved and keeping up with the news thanks to this brilliant attack by Ukraine at a crucial time. And I'll get into the whole timing thing here in a second. But this is from the Washington Post. I'm just If you'll let me read a couple of graphs real quick and then we'll move forward. The article is titled, Rapid Loss of Territory in Ukraine Reveals Spent Russian Military. It's a pretty good headline. Moscow's rapid loss of more than 2,300 square miles of territory in northeastern Ukraine has raised the prospect that the Russian military is spent as an offensive force for the foreseeable future, which could limit Russian President Vladimir Putin to defending the Ukrainian territory he already holds while leaving him open to additional defeats, according to military analysts. The situation is a sobering reality for Putin, whose forces barreled into Ukraine on February 24th on a mission to demilitarize and denazify the country, but retreated from Kiev just over five weeks later to concentrate on expanding control over Ukraine's east through artillery warfare. Obviously, Ukraine's east is Donbass, as you've heard me say probably a hundred or a thousand times. Continuing, as Ukrainian forces roll back those eastern gains, Putin faces obstacles in replenishing the battered ranks and degraded equipment of his military to any degree that would allow Russia to again take the initiative on the battlefield. The result is an opportunity for Ukrainian forces, which, despite significant losses of their own, are hoping to make territorial gains before winter conditions harden battle lines. Further gains by Ukraine, particularly around the southern city of Kherson, would deal additional blows to Russian morale and increase pressure on Putin, who is already facing calls by hardline Russians to announce a general mobilization that could be potentially toxic for his regime. So thanks for letting me share that. That last part about a general mobilization, we talked about that a bit on Tuesday, and the Russians are going to have to decide if they want to do the wise and um, mature thing and perhaps accept some kind of a um, draw or situation like that. But the problem is that the Ukrainian military has proven so successful of late and they have been gaining strength while the Russians have been losing strength. And as I've said in previous podcasts, the Ukrainian Air Force is continuing to get stronger. They're continuing to get better and better uh, air superiority. You don't see videos of Russian helicopters flying around like you did. You'll see some Russian jets from time to time, but usually those videos are videos posted by Ukrainian forces shooting down these aircraft, either with uh, surface-to-air missiles launched by individual infantry troops or sometimes even Ukrainian jets in dogfights. So... Ukraine is getting stronger and Russia is getting weaker. And so, as that last line said, all of this is kind of a politically toxic thing for, for Putin in Russia because some of the you know, very nationalistic Russians, they don't want to lose. And some want to mobilize, 
call a draft and actually go in and actually fight the Ukrainians even harder with more troops. But it doesn't appear to be a popular war, and there's significant risk to mobilizing the army to do that. I had mentioned a second ago the issue of timing, and I wanted to share another article. This one's called Ukraine's Coming Winter of Decision uh, by Richard Haas. He's a longtime analyst and foreign policy advisor. He's been an advisor to um, previous presidents, uh, presidential administrations. And what he mentions is that, and I'll give a quick um, summary. For those who haven't been following the war from the beginning, Everyone has feared the winter in Europe because everyone has known that if Russia uses um, gas as a weapon and they cut off gas supplies, then European support of arming and financial support of Ukraine could end if the people of Europe uh, show displeasure with their governments and demand that aid cease so that they can have lower utility bills, essentially. And so that's been a concern for pretty much since the invasion began. However, the timing of this advance has uh, really helped, I guess, um, improve outspoken support from European leaders. So it was the timing was absolutely perfect. And I'm going to share just a couple of graphs from the article from Ukraine's Coming Winter of Decision by Richard Haas. And I quote, with Russia cutting off gas supplies, Ukraine's recent military success will make it easier for European governments to justify economic and personal sacrifice during what promises to be a difficult winter. Ukraine's counteroffensive is having a powerful impact on Russian politics as well. Putin, facing growing criticism from conservative national forces at home, will have to decide whether to double down on the war effort, and if so, how to go about it. Doing more and asking more of the Russian people is not without domestic political risk, but arguably it could be less risky for him than a course of action that leads to additional cascading military defeats. For now, there is the prospect of several more months of intense fighting in the northeast and south of the country. Eventually, though, the scale will diminish as a result of frigid weather and the inability of either side to sustain large military operations. So again, really just dead-on analysis by Richard Haas, and especially about what's going to happen as winter begins, that it's going to be very difficult for either side to do much. And so a lot of this is going to be locked in place. And I know a lot of, I almost want to say cheerleaders, because I don't want to say analysts. I was about to say a lot of analysts, but the reality is most analysts know that as cheerleaders, so to speak, kind of got back into keeping up with the war. Everyone was just hoping that Ukraine would have these incredible offensives. They'd drive the Russians out. Boom, war's over. That's not reality. That's probably not going to happen. That's I would, I would put that percentage at well below 5%. The reality is that there's still a lot of land to retake. There's, especially if the Ukrainians were going to try to take back the Crimean Peninsula, they're not even through Kherson yet. There is a lot of fighting left, and winter is approaching, so this is going to keep going on for quite a while, unless something were to happen to Putin in Russia. Having said that, and I wish I had shared an article months ago, this is one of those where you kind of kick yourself, and I may try to find it again at some point, but there was a potential replacement for Putin who was interviewed. I can't remember the gentleman's name. It really doesn't matter, but it was interesting reading some of the answers because what you get across from it I went into this article hoping that, hey, this guy could be more rational, more normal. However, that was not the case. Uh, he was younger, crazier, more aggressive, and more dangerous, probably. So, this is one of those, you got to be careful what you wish for, because you might just get it, and what you might get might be worse than what we already have. So, in a country where you have to take power by force, there is no guarantee that if Putin were to be deposed, removed, etc., there is no guarantee that we get a better op better option. We may get something far worse. So the Russian people do have a lot of pride. They have been ostracized from the basically the world community. I'll share something about that again here in a second. And desperate people do desperate things. So we'll keep hoping, but we also have to be realistic and for the Ukrainian people 
they have to understand that this war isn't going to end. And for those who are listening in Western governments, we have to understand that the aid needs to continue. And a lot of it, obviously, is military, but increasingly you'll start to see some things about helping out Ukraine's government financially because, let's be real, they're in the middle of a war and their economy, they've seen some pretty ugly numbers. I'll have to get into that at some point, but these are ugly, ugly deficits that they're having to run and they're going to need a lot of help. Let's move on a bit, and I hate that I even have to do this and I'm going to keep it as brief as possible, but a week or so ago in classic Western media fashion that makes me absolutely pull my hair out. Yet again, the cable news anchors decided, oh, Putin may use a nuclear weapon. They're losing. What will he do? And so, it's so frustrating because they do this crap just to, just to scare American people and to basically gin up ratings. But there was a Washington Post story called The Russians Are in Trouble, and it interviews a U.S. official, and I've got it quoted in the source notes, but it talks about the weaknesses, that Russia doesn't have a lot of manpower reserves or equipment reserves, and the officials who were interviewed, I said official earlier, but they actually interviewed a few, were skeptical that Putin would resort to extreme tactics such as the use of chemical or tactical nuclear weapons. So the analysts, they kind of knocked that story down. I only share that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I get so sick of Western media overplaying their hand and trying to scare people, just like they did about the nuclear plant, which I've covered. You know, I covered it the last episode. A week or two ago, I stuck my neck out and I said the Western media were, again, trying to scare people. So this is just one of those little stories. We need to knock it down because we got to get it to where people are not scared to keep up with the news. You need to be able to turn the news on and not end up like with a heart rate that's about 30 beats per minute faster by the time you finish watching it. So I like to try to be reasonable with people and explain things in ways that don't scare you, which probably doesn't do much for my ratings, but I'd rather be honest with you guys. So let's just knock out all the little cable talking heads who are over talking and trying to scare you. It's probably not going to happen. If something like that were to happen, uh, Putin knows that his days on Earth would probably be down to hours, if not minutes. Not it's not going to be in, it's not going to end well for him if that happens. It's also very, I would say, I don't want to get in percentages, but it's just not realistic. And I dare say that if they even started moving some type of weapon or positioning or sending out signals intel for something like that to happen. I think we're probably going to know about it, and I think we're going to do something to help stop it. I also don't think there are many Russian generals crazy enough to do something like that. So it just frustrates the crap out of me when Western media, people who don't know what they're talking about, put out stuff that just, all it does is just scare people. And in the end, when you scare people, they become disengaged. They don't want to hear about it anymore. And that hurts the Ukrainian people. It also hurts our country in the long run. So that stuff just frustrates me. Oh my word, did I just go on a rant. So, I apologize that I like to be a calm, nice guy. But man, I I honestly am a passionate person. And I honestly love both the news and our country. I think we take it for granted how what a great country we have. And just the past, really, five or so years, but it really goes back probably 15 years or more, Americans have become hooked on reality TV, and they have become just, to put it nicely, I guess, underinformed, underinformed about how our government works. And for some, it's just been a game on who's going to be president or, or what'll happen. And some are just beaten down, and they have no faith in our government anymore that Congress can't do anything. All of these are very scary and deadly things. For the American public to believe. I've been reading a book about FDR and the Depression lately, and before FDR was elected, most Americans wanted an autocrat, someone with huge power that could just get things done. And so when a when the public becomes disengaged or stops 
basically keeping up with the news and remaining informed, they begin to potentially lean toward dangerous things, things that we have not done for the past 240 years as we have kept this amazing country intact, and things that if you study Roman history, you will very quickly realize when a strong man, it's typically a man, it was certainly a man in Roman history, but when a strong person takes over a country and has almost unlimited powers, nothing good results from that. This is a very simple thing, and when you say it that way to someone, they understand. But it's, it's difficult to get it to that point because mostly you just kind of stumble and fall into those type of situations. And I want to do what little I can to make sure that doesn't happen. So, again, I like to be a nice guy. I like to be calm. We have way too many screamers. Holy crap, do we have too many screamers. But it just, when I see media outlets scaring people or hyping up news, it's it frustrates me because it's irresponsible. I wanted to find a quote from Benjamin Franklin that I once had hanging in my office when I ran the Oak Ridge Observer. And it was a great quote, and of course I couldn't find it. You can never find anything you want when you want to. But it basically said that an editor or publisher should be, and there were a number of little things, but I remember a couple of them. One of them was well-versed in military affairs, but it also said something about that a, a good editor or publisher should also be like the captain of a ship and should always be stable and restrained and should do their absolute best to basically ensure good order and calm and not be easily uh, startled by events or you know, become too emotional. And I just remember, I wish I could find that quote. I'm going to have to find it now. But I always would tell, you know, I didn't have a big staff, but anytime we were doing layout or the reporters were laying, uh, turning in their stories and the layout folks were fixing the headlines that, you know, don't write scary headlines. Let's understate everything. Let the other paper be the screaming, scary just out of control, bawling little kid, and we are going to be the solid, firm paper that everyone who has any sense realizes is the mature voice. And that's what we did, and we that's that was the competitive edge we had, and that's the way I am as a consumer of news. I don't want scary, over-the-top stuff that proves wrong half the time such as the two examples I've already mentioned in this podcast about the Ukrainian nuclear facility or the possibility of nuclear weapons being used. That kind of stuff, if you're, if you're you know, consuming news that raises your blood pressure or that is consistently wrong, and think of all the examples, guys. You know, Y2K, bird flu. Like We could make a list of just unbelievable things that have been overhyped and, you know, I'm not talking about when there's a serious concern. All of those things were concerns, but we didn't have to act like the entire world was going to shut down. And at any rate, I need to get off my soapbox. We need to get back to the news. But I'm sorry that I was not the personality I wanted to be there because I'm mostly a nice guy, I think. So let's move on, guys. Let's move to a much lighter topic uh, the hat tip on this goes to uh, Stephen Pfeiffer. He's a former U.S. ambassador to, to Ukraine. And he shared on Twitter a... Uh, it's, you almost can't believe it, but it's a photo. I have it in the source notes. That some Russian units in Ukraine are using for a map, get this, the Atlas of the Automobile Roads of the USSR. And so if you look on the photo, it's kind of a dirty, um, almost dog-eared looking copy of a atlas that is obviously being pulled away from a Russian soldier. And so the Russians are using atlases as maps, um, which is, you know, I guess an absolute crunch if you're a survivalist or something. Maybe maybe that would work. But uh, if I was doing a conducting a military operation, I would certainly not want to use an atlas. I would prefer to have a uh, military map that has, you know, elevation and depressions and all the things that matter in combat. But 
Unfortunately for the Russians, that's not the situation. And I will say also that uh, there is a bit of... Tra the, the whole war is tragic in a hundred different levels. Um, and it's all on Putin's shoulders and maybe some of the Russian media and the people who have enabled him. But it is, it is almost, besides all of the atrocities that the Russian soldiers have committed, and obviously there have been unbelievable amounts of them, you know, I don't for a second believe every Russian is terrible. Um, every Russian soldier serving over there is terrible. And it's honestly really sad how under-equipped, uh, how poorly trained, how poorly led. It's honestly criminal uh, the way that these um, soldiers have what they've had to endure. And it's probably led to some of the cruelty that they've uh, shown because when a situation gets that bad, um, you have to kind of act out or you you could act out. And so that might be part of it, but um, not that I forgive them for the things they've done. But I will say they have not been served well by their government or by their military leaders. And, um, you know, in the end, they're, they're humans as well. And it's, uh, it's easily to be, it's easy to be influenced by leadership or lack thereof when you're a young uh, man. I don't know how many Russian women serve, but when you're a young man serving on the front line and you're 18 or 19 years old with very little training it's, uh, and you're poorly equipped, you're a conscript, it's very easy to, um, I don't know, to fall into things you shouldn't be doing and it's just criminal what, um, how even their own, so how they've treated their own soldiers. So at any rate, I don't want to spend too long feeling sorry for Russian soldiers, but uh, it is worth at least in a, in a sense of fairness to say that they have not been served well. Wow, I said that uh, that would be a lighter one, and I managed to take a lighter topic and move that into something a little darker than I meant. I guess that's how I'm wired or something. I'm not sure. But, okay. And yeah, you know what? The more I think about it, yeah, that is how I'm wired. I have a big heart. So, there you go. All right, so let's move to... Um, a little bit higher strategic level. Vladimir Putin met with China, and I don't know what he expected to happen from that meeting, but I am confident he did not go into that meeting with the uh, expected outcome that ended up happening. So he meets with his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, and I don't think it went the way he expected. In fact, afterward... Uh, Vladimir Putin had to give a little bit of a press conference and he gave a little little statement on it and he said that Moscow understood that China had quote questions and concerns end quote about the war in Ukraine. The article I'm quoting from is the New York Times and it says this so well. This was a quote notable if cryptic admission from Mr. Putin that Beijing may not fully approve of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the article goes on to say, and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping in his first face-to-face -face meeting with Mr. Putin since the invasion began struck a far more subdued tone than the Russian president and steered clear in his public comments of any mention of Ukraine at all. Taken together, the remarks were a stark sign that Russia lacks the full backing of its most powerful international partner as it tries to recover from a humiliating rout in northeastern Ukraine last week. So this was, I mean, just mind-blowing. I honestly had kind of thought that China was increasingly going to align itself with Russia, but it uh, doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, former ambassador to Russia, Michael McFall, said that uh, it was remarkable that Xi is not supporting Putin and that no announcements that were made about no weapons, no ammo, no chips, no real words of solidarity, just a willingness to buy Russian energy at very discounted prices. So there you go. And I will say, this gives me a little hope that I am hoping for all of our sake and the world's sake and for a lot of people's sake, that China is seeing that um, maybe aligning their future to the likes of Iran, North Korea, and Russia is probably not the most profitable way for them to go. This is what I'm hoping. 
this is kind of goes against what's been happening of late, but at the same time, a lot of Western companies have been leaving. Uh, Europe has been aligning itself more together as obviously against the Russians, but increasingly moving toward um, stiffer resistance to China. And maybe, just maybe, uh, China and Xi Jinping are starting to see the light. I don't know. I'm an optimist. I don't want to get my hopes up too much. But uh, I was certainly stunned as well that uh, there were no comments or anything in support of Vladimir Putin. And if you watch the video, which you can find online, he does not look like a healthy man. And he does not look like a um, president of any kind of powerful country. He looks like a guy that's reading a sheet who looks scared. He looks old and frail. He looks almost paranoid and scared. And uh, it doesn't inspire confidence if you watch the video. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please consider subscribing. At a minimum, subscribe to the podcast through whatever channel you're listening to us on. Or if you can, please go to my substack, stanrmitchell.substack.com, and subscribe there for email alerts. That would absolutely make my day. All of my podcasts are free, but if you really want to be a rock star and support what we're doing, you can sign up at my substack for $5 a month. Not only will that help encourage and sustain what we're doing here, as well as hopefully make it better, but it will also get you the Tuesday post on Tuesday. The Tuesday posts are available to everyone, but they're delayed by one day unless you're a paid subscriber. That way, it will encourage folks to hopefully help support what we're doing here if they can, but it also doesn't really penalize you if you can't make that $5 a month payment. At most, you're waiting just one extra day for the content. But again, if you can, please go to my Substack website and just sign up for email alerts that would absolutely make my day and while we're on this topic i'm not good at asking for help sometimes but if you could drop a review on the podcast you listen to that would be awesome i think we got like six or so on apple and i'm not sure about the others but i have read that if i can get that to like 30 or 40 then the algorithms take over and everyone will learn how freaking amazing i am okay that that was that was lame I don't know how to say it, but the reality is, is I believe in this mission and we need to reach more people. And if we can trick these algorithms into thinking that this show is amazing, then we will actually reach more people. And I actually do believe in all honesty that that would be good for this country. So if you got two seconds and can throw at least click the five star thing. But if you can write a short review, that'd be even better. Um, so thanks again, guys. I wanted to stay on Russia for just a little bit longer on one final thing. And I wanted to share something that I'd meant to get in in the Tuesday podcast, but I just couldn't get it squeezed in. But there was an article in The Atlantic that discussed why the Russians have been just so brutal to Ukraine and their atrocities. And in the article in The Atlantic, it was, it was an interview that was done by Tom Nichols, who's a longtime professor of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College, and he's an expert on Russia. He's now he retired and then unretired and joined the staff of the Atlantic. Uh, I think he's a bit of a workaholic, which I completely admire and appreciate. He did an interview with a gentleman, uh, Dr. Nick uh, Gavazdev. I struggle with that name, so I apologize if I slightly messed that up. But Dr. Gvozdev is a has a PhD in Russian history from the University of Oxford, and he taught with Tom Nichols at the uh, U.S. Naval War College, and so he's also they're both also Eastern Orthodox Christians. So as they said, this was kind of in a painful aspect of watching all this unfold, uh, what what they called an an immense tragedy, and so they shared part of an interview. They're obviously friends, but they did an interview together. And um, this article really, well, first let me say The Atlantic's amazing magazine, probably one of the, definitely, in my opinion, the best in the United States, arguably the world. I would suggest subscribing to them. If, I definitely put them up there with The Economist, and I think a subscription price is like five ninety nine or $6.99 um, to, to get one. But besides that, this is the first article that has really explained some of the, the just horrific atrocities that I haven't really been able to get my arms around because, uh, I mean, the rapes, the tortures, the, it seems just so much worse than what is even necessary 
if you're trying to brutalize a population or just get information. There's almost like a hatred and a barbarity to to it that doesn't really make sense. So I wanted to share, I've got it linked in the source notes, but I wanted to read just one paragraph from Dr. Gavazdev. This is the paragraph. At all levels of Russian society, from the cab driver in the street to the Kremlin insider, there was a strongly held belief that Russian forces would be greeted as liberators, especially in the Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine. Indeed, the initial Russian military plan was based on the assumption that Ukrainian soldiers would refuse to fight and Ukrainian politicians would defect. This turned out not to be the case. Even more striking, it was the two largest Russian-speaking cities in Ukraine, Kharkiv and Odessa, which proved to be the focal points of the successful blunting of the Russian invasion. Almost all of the atrocities we've seen have targeted people precisely in those parts of Ukraine that are part of the Russian-speaking world. There does appear to be a strong undercurrent of giving these, quote, traitors, end quote, their due recompense. So I wanted to share that because I, I thought that at least somewhat explains it that the Russian soldiers have, they feel almost betrayed. And it's, I guess, impossible for them to comprehend that the Ukrainians would resist the basically the, the Russian liberation or belief system that the Russian soldiers expected to find. And you've got to remember, if you go back to like 2014, when uh, Putin started this entire affair, at the time, there were lots of propaganda in Russia stating that there were Russians being treated poorly, that, you know, basically that Russia was going in to liberate Russian citizens who were being mistreated by the Ukrainian government. And obviously, that was mostly incorrect and not true. And I don't think the Russian soldiers realize that once you have a bit of democracy and freedom, that you're not going to welcome in a different type of government. So there's clearly some misunderstanding going on. And it is kind of interesting because I do know that a lot of Ukrainians were close to Russians. There were families that were just across the border. That uh, There's a lot of Russians that vacationed in Ukraine. They were they were closer in the past, but the past decade has just really pulled them apart. And I don't think the Russian soldiers had any idea, or the generals, probably not even Putin, had any idea that this would go the way it's gone. And so it's been a tragedy from the beginning. But that was a great article. Again, that was in The Atlantic. You can read the whole thing. There's a lot more great stuff in that article. But I did want to share that because that's the first thing I've read that really kind of made things make a little bit more sense in my mind. Moving along, let's go to uh, the topic of China. I wanted to cover something on that topic, and then we'll get to the end of it, which is probably the best part, which is the motivation and wisdom. But on the China news, I have a readout from, um, actually three of them, from the Department of Defense. These are just regular press releases that they upload. But as I've said before, so many times you can just kind of pick up small nuggets from these things and see things that help give you a bigger picture. So briefly, there was a readout from the Secretary of Defense on a phone call with the Philippines' senior undersecretary and officer in charge of the Department of National Defense, uh, Jose Faustino. The name, the title, doesn't really matter. What does matter is some of the facts that are in their discussions, and they noted that the U.S. commitment to Philippine security is ironclad and that the U.S. mutual defense treaty commitments extend to Philippine armed forces, public vessels, and aircraft in the South China Sea. Secretary Austin uh, agreed to continue close operational coordination in the region, and they both agreed to underscore the importance of a free, open, and prosperous Indo-Pacific. That's the first one. Next one is a readout of the U.S.-Vietnam Defense Policy Dialogue that was between uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner with a individual with the Vietnam Deputy Defense Minister. And I'm not going to try that name because uh, I assure you my southern accent can't pull that one off. But 
from that one, just one little sentence I want to highlight. Dr. Ratner noted that the U.S. commitment to a strong, prosperous, and independent Vietnam is enduring and also highlighted continued U.S. support for the Asian, the ASEAN centrality. Both leaders reaffirmed the importance of like rules-based international order and agreed to work collectively and with like-minded partners to peacefully address and resolve disputes in the region. So just a little sentence from that one that, again, was with a senior leader uh, in the government of Vietnam. And then one final one real quick from India. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, called the Minister of Defense for India. And I wanted to share just two little parts from that. And then I'll explain what these three small data points mean in a larger sense with some research I've done. So from the phone call with the uh, Minister of Defense of India. Quote, in light of the evolving regional security environment, the two defense leaders committed to expanding information sharing and logistics cooperation as the U.S. and Indian militaries operate and coordinate more closely together. Secretary Austin expressed his support for additional mid-voyage repairs of U.S. Navy ships in India following the historic visit of the USNS Charles Drew in August. So basically, India will help repair U.S. ships who are probably two to three months out at sea, may have small issues come up. India will help repair those ships. That's an important thing. Um, so they're going to continue to do that, coordinate those operations a little more closely. But here's the next one. They agreed to initiate a dialogue later this year to deepen bilateral collaboration in space, cyber, artificial intelligence, and other new defense domains. Not named. Interesting. Um, Secretary Austin and the Minister Singh highlighted their commitment to strengthening defense technology and industrial cooperation to support India's rise as an industry leader and regional security provider. And then they concluded the call by reaffirming the centrality of the U.S.-India defense partnership to their shared vision for a free and open Indo-Pacific region. So my point in highlighting those things Stan being Stan, I started doing some digging. And what's interesting, obviously China is exerting its influence and trying to intimidate Taiwan and some other partners in the region. They're obviously trying to build artificial islands. They're trying to lay claim to uh, islands that are not theirs, that they claim historically were theirs. So they're, they're obviously the growing bully in the area. And clearly, not that this is some big secret, the U.S. is countering this by pulling together a long list of allies. And so I started just researching, like, who, who are these countries? We know the big ones. We know Australia. We know Japan, Vietnam, Philippines, New Zealand. You can add South Korea. Obviously, there's India as well. And as I was looking into it, there's actually even a larger list than I originally thought. And I was doing some research on the RIMPAC activities of our U.S. Navy, which stands for RIM of the Pacific. It's something we've been doing for about 20 years, and the most recent one, it's been growing as an exercise. We'll take multiple countries, and our navies will operate together in simulated defense and operational um, capacities, as well as sometimes even just disaster relief. But it gives some of these countries a chance to expand their uh, operational um, length from their home islands or home country, but also to operate with a larger Navy. We share operational tips, and it's just a, a joint training exercise against um, imaginary opponents. You would never name such a country as China or something like that. But in the most recent one, June 2022, a total of 26 countries took part. Those included Australia, Brunei, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Denmark, Ecuador, France, Germany, India, Indonesia, Israel, Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Peru, the Philippines, Singapore, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Tonga, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Obviously, some of those are countries sending ships from a long ways away, South America, Mexico, etc., uh, obviously Canada, so there are 11 countries in Asia, there's five in Europe, four in South America, three in North America. So I was a little surprised at the length of that list. Not that all of these countries would 
potentially help if China were to attack uh, Taiwan. But at the same time, that's an impressive list. And all of these countries, with the way the world economy is set up and the amount of shipping that goes through the South China Sea and some of the areas that China wants to try to increasingly push or throw around their weight, it's interesting to see such a list and to think that um, the U.S. is going to great lengths to expand its relationships with countries that could help um, support and um, make basically make our Navy stronger, even if these vessels did not necessarily help the U.S. in some type of a military capacity. Having some of these other navies help us with tracking ships, you know, controlling area, etc. Uh, that's a long list of countries, and I don't think China wants to fight everybody at the same time. So, in my mind, I guess like the the Tom Clancy thriller writer mind that I have, that I want to have anyway, I imagine lots of scenarios, and that's a lot of countries. And if, it, if I were China, it would give me pause, and I would certainly act less like a loudmouth bully and start to realize that I'm not sure the world's going to go along with some of the, uh, I guess, plans that China would like to see happen. So I'm hoping, you know, based on what I shared in the earlier part of the podcast, that I'm hoping China is starting to put the brakes on some of this anyway, because it certainly would be best for the world and for their own economy and, and, you know, for everything, for everyone to coexist as peacefully as possible. So Wanted to share all of that. Hopefully that was as insightful to you as it was to me. And with that, let's get to the best part of the episode, the motivation and wisdom section. As I say every week, I'm just going to read these and kind of work my way down through them. These are all great folks you can follow on Twitter and if you're a Twitter kind of person. The first one, give a shout out to General Martin Dempsey. He shared this one. It was a quote from Napoleon Hill, who was a uh, motivational self-help person back in the early 1900s, and the quote is, if you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. I'll read that one again. If you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. A lot of wisdom in that one. Let's go to the next one. Make sure you read something every day that inspires you. Next one. Don't rush. Great things take time. Next one. I will never, ever give up. That's a good one to repeat to ourselves, isn't it? Next one. Just like a computer, your mind slows down when it has too many tabs open. That's a good one. Next one. I will never, ever give up. Next one. If it drains you, it's not for you. Always remember that. Another good one. If you dream it, you can do it. Good one. Next one. Don't wish for it. Work for it. I like that one. Next one. Opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. That was a quote by Thomas Edison. I like that one. I'll read it again. Opportunity is missed by most people because it it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. Next one. Focus on issues you can control not on those you can't. It's another good one. Next one. Remember that you can touch so many lives by simply being in joy. I like that. I'm going to read it one more time because it takes a second for that one to sink in. Remember that you can touch so many lives by simply being in joy, meaning, or in happiness. We all know people who've just, man, they've just walked by with a smile on their face or maybe they're whistling and you just see them, and it just, man, it just does something, doesn't it? I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know just a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry, even though the recruiter lied and said that they didn't have any infantry slots available. He was trying to get me into intelligence, because I managed to somehow score high on the ASVAB test. Maybe he would have gotten a bonus if he'd been successful. 
But I was a persistent little SOB, and I started talking to the Army and even did a weekend training drill with their recruiters. They told me I could get infantry with them with a chance to become a Ranger. I was about to sign when, lo and behold, my Marine recruiter somehow found a guaranteed infantry slot. It's been said that I don't usually stop when I make my mind up to make something happen, and I suppose that's true to this day. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10-plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here, as well, a twice-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. It sounds cheesy, but every new subscriber I get, and I promise you I get an email for each one, they really do help make my day. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. The View from the Front is a reader-supported publication. I still work a day job, although it is my dream to eventually do this uh, full-time with the author gig. But the best way to make this work sustainable and help improve it is with a paid subscription. But at the same time, free ones are appreciated too. Make sure to visit our website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you don't ever miss one. And plus, it'll make my day when I get that email. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. Try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. Also, if you have a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, reach out to them. Finally, and this especially goes to all my awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, reach out to someone, please. Call that friend or family member. Do it for us all. We've already lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide. So I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath, breathe, and call a friend or family member or someone who can help. I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email, etc. I can't tell you how much those mean to me, and I love each and every one of you all. So please, join me again in our next episode. Stay safe until then. Thanks again. You guys are the best. As always, don't forget to check out my books. You can find all 11 of them on Amazon. I've written a CIA Marine Sniper series about a guy named Nick Woods. It's about a Marine Scout sniper who does, uh, let's just say, some secret missions for the uh, CIA. And he eventually gets sold out, has his life wrecked, and uh, he has to... He doesn't have to, I guess, but he decides to hunt down some folks who uh, may have sold him out and do something about it. Pretty awesome. That series has done the best of all of them. I've written four books in that series, and actually I'm almost done with the fifth book. And as I know from several persistent readers who make my day by sending emails and saying, hey, you got that fifth book done yet? I'm trying my best to wrap it up, but I'm also wanting to make sure it's really good because it's been a few years since I released a book in that series. And I'll be honest, it, it involves partly Ukraine. And so uh, when the the in third invasion by Russia happened in Ukraine, they kind of messed up how I saw the book going because I didn't expect an invasion when I started that book a couple of years ago. So at any rate, that book will be done soon. That'll be the fifth book. But I've also written a detective series about a prior force recon Marine. And I've written two books in that one. That one's starting to take off. I've written a private investigator book about a former Army Ranger. I've written an action-packed Western. I've even written a motivational-slash-biography book about President Obama. And I've even written a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. 
and one is about Afghanistan, which is called Hill 406, and I've had quite a few veterans tell me that it is one of the realest war books they've ever read. So, if you'd like to support me or check out those books, please do. Like I said, you can find all of them on Amazon, and with that, I'm out.